All right, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to open it up to the passage that was just read, Luke chapter 8, starting in uh, verse 22. <clears throat> While you're turning there, let me just uh, pray for our time in the Word uh, together. Father God, we ask that you would, uh, you would help us, help us to look at what for me will be a, a familiar passage. Uh, for some, it might be new and fresh. Now we ask that you would help us all to come with fresh eyes and um, open hearts to receive uh, your word, that you would stir in us this morning a renewed sense of awe at who you are, at your awesome power, and your love for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Because you're reasonable people, I know that you all are excited about baseball season uh, starting up. Uh, Ed's excited, Uh, one of you guys. Uh, So, (laughs) uh, but one of, uh, uh, I I love baseball and uh, I love all the stuff around baseball. I love kind of the pace of it. I love the ability to just kind of uh, slow down a little bit and which to you guys is like, yeah, that's why we hate baseball because it's really, it's really boring. Uh, But there's all kinds of fun stuff uh, around it uh, and just, just, Lots of things you can do with it. I'm reminded of uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Red Bull was filming a commercial with a a slugger, uh, Chris Bryant. And uh, he was uh, just brought out to come and basically just talk about Red Bull or whatever. I don't know. I I didn't pay attention to the commercial. Uh, But he's he's hitting uh, batting practice. And uh, while he's hitting batting practice, uh, the guy throwing BP uh, gets a call and has to go all of a sudden. And uh, luckily for, for Chris Bryant, uh, this cameraman or this kind of audio, the sound guy who's been following him around to, uh, uh, to record this, this commercial uh, is like, hey, look, I, you know, I, I, throw, I throw kids to, uh, you know, balls to my kids uh, every now and then. Let me, let me jump in there. And Chris Bryant's like, no, it's not quite the same because, uh, like, professional batting practice is not just, like, you know, soft toss or whatever. They're, they're, they're getting it in there, and it's, it's got to be in a good spot. And, the, and the, the sound man's like, no, no, I got it. And, and honestly, this sound man, he's been, he's been chirping at Chris Bryant the whole time, just been kind of obnoxious. And, uh, uh, and so Chris Bryant, probably because he's being videoed, is like, okay, whatever, and uh, uh, let's, let's get this, this sound guy in. And the sound guy uh, gets gets behind the screen there for batting practice and he starts throwing him in there and he really catches Chris Bryant off guard because he's, he's throwing strikes and he's throwing them real, real good. And then, uh, and so Chris Bryant's like, man, this is, this is great. Uh, at one point he's like, this guy might be better than the other guy. Uh, and so he's, he's, he's hitting, hitting batting practice. Well, then the sound guy starts, starts throwing curveballs uh, for batting practice, which if you're not familiar with baseball, is not something you just do, right? You don't, you don't just throw a curveball. Like, you got to know what you're doing there. And so the, the, bat, the, the sound guy starts throwing, throwing breaking balls into, uh, in, into batting practice. And at one point, Chris Bryant kind of steps back, and he's like, what is going on? Like, who is this guy? Uh, and he, he swings, and, and that, they start chirping back and forth with the sound guy's like, bet you can't put this one over the fence. You know, so, so he's smack-talking uh, uh, Chris Bryant, this major league slugger or whatever, and they, they finish up, and he's like, three more, and, and the guy's like, all right, I'm going to put it like lower right. You put it over the right, the, the right field fence, and, uh, uh, and he throws it, and the guy misses, and he's like, you missed it, didn't you? You know, so he's just, he's just trash-talking him or whatever. And uh, a- after, after the, uh, the, the bat batting practice session is over, uh, the, the sound guy says, hey, can, can I have your bat? Like, this has been really cool. Can I have your bat? And the guy's like, sure. He's like, do you mind signing it for me? And uh, he says, sure. He said, just, uh, just write it out to uh, Greg Maddox, <laughs> which some of you guys don't know, but Greg Maddox is a Hall of Fame pitcher that they have, uh, they've, they've pranked Chris Bryant. He's, he's got all this, like, 
uh, slum garb. Right? He's got like, like Hollywood mustaches and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was not a sound guy. He was a professional uh, retired uh, pitcher the whole time. But I just love, I love that progression, right? Uh, where uh, uh, Chris Bryant has no idea what's going on, but what he does is he starts to see, uh, he starts to be kind of on the receiving end of some kind of incredible ability that this sound guy has. And it leads him to ask the right question. Who is this guy? Something's off here. What's going on? That's very much what's going on in the text in front of us. In the passage that we're looking at today, the focus of Luke's gospel begins to shift for uh, 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 several, several passages, several stories here. We've been looking a lot about Jesus, his teachings primarily. He's been interacting, he's been teaching. Obviously, he's been doing some miracles and saying some incredible things, but a lot of it's, a lot of it's his, his teachings that Tony's been leading us through in the, the last several chapters. But for this passage, and especially the passage next week, there begins to, there's a shift in focus away from from the teachings of Jesus and instead on his mighty acts, on his ability. Of course, Jesus has been doing amazing things. He's healed people. He's uh, cast out demons and everything. But the focus of this text is on the power that Jesus has over all things. And you can go ahead, if you've, you've got your Bible there, you can kind of uh, just look through probably even the headings and see that we've got his power over nature in the storm, his power over demons as he meets this man across the sea. In the, next, next, uh, the passage next week, we're going to see that he has power over disease and even death. Luke is trying to highlight for us This man can do incredible things, and we are meant to look at what this man is doing and step back and say, who is this guy? Who is this guy? We see that question even presented kind of starkly in front of us by the disciples there when they say, who who then is this? But I really want you to see the progression in this text. And if you get kind of almost nothing else, I want you to, want you to grapple with this, this progression, this sequence of events, right? It is a display of authority and power. In both of these stories, we've got this amazing display of authority and power within a reckoning with the identity of the powerful one and then a response to him. A display of authority and power, an understanding who is this guy? Who is this? What is this identity given all this power that he has? And then we're meant to ask the question what am I going to do with it? Friends, that's what's before us today. I want you to see in this text a presentation of the authority and the power that Jesus Christ has. I want it to be unmistakable. He has all authority and power over all things, the natural and the supernatural. And because of that reality, we are to step back and say, who is he? And then as we answer that question, we've got to ask, what are we going to do with it? These first two stories, as I've already mentioned, give us a contrast One of them shows Jesus encountering a a threat from the natural world. And the second shows us 
Jesus encountering a threat from the supernatural world. It's almost like Luke is trying to go to the extremes here and say, take your pick, any sphere of influence, Jesus has the authority. And so the the central idea here is that Jesus' redemptive authority extends over all creation, both the, the natural and the supernatural. His redemptive authority, it extends over all creation, natural and supernatural. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your life looks like right now. I just guarantee it falls somewhere under that umbrella. It's either natural or supernatural or some kind of combination of both. And I've got good news for you, friends. Jesus has all authority over both of those realms. Nothing you are going through falls outside of those two realms. Natural, supernatural, Jesus has all authority. So we're just going to break it up into those two chunks. Uh, you can just, even as you're reading through the text, you can see the division here. The first few verses show us that Jesus reigns over the natural world. In verses 22 to 25, Jesus reigns over the natural world. The text uh, tells us that this event uh, occurs one day, but if we read Mark's gospel and his telling of these events, uh, it is likely that this happened kind of towards the end of the day. After Jesus had been teaching all day to crowds of people, the reality is Jesus is tired at this point. And so he suggests that they pull away from the crowds, they get into the boat, and he can rest a little bit. And he says, well, let's go to the other side. The other side of the sea would have been the, uh, the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Why did Jesus want to go there? Why not just kind of cast out into the, the, the sea and just kind of get some, some shut eye? It, it's, really, it's really hard to say. I think it's interesting at least to consider the possibility that last week we ended with this emphasis that Jesus' family does not, is not limited to his blood relatives, to those that are his kin, those that are his people. Instead, he says, my family is made up of those who receive my teaching and they walk in it in obedience and in trust of him. And it's almost as though that he's he's taking this teaching to its extreme and saying, let me show you how far I'm willing to show my family extends. Let's go all the way to the Gentiles. Let's let them hear the word. Let's let them be a part of this family. And it's not a dominant theme in Luke's gospel, but it is a consistent theme. He wants to show us that the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not limited to the people of Israel, but it is something that extends to all nations. He'll expand this especially when he gets to the book of Acts. But anyway, on the, on the way to the other side, Jesus falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, suddenly this storm uh, arises or kind of descends on the lake. And the disciples, who are experienced fishermen, by the way, they find themselves in danger. This is actually not altogether surprising. It's just given the geography of the region, it would be fairly uh, normal or, or at least I don't know if I can say expected, but it's not altogether unusual that a sudden, very dangerous storm kind of descends on the lake and the disciples, they find themselves in danger. And so they go down and they wake Jesus up. This whole story, in some ways, if you're familiar with the, the Bible, might remind you of an Old Testament story, Jonah, right? There in the story of Jonah, Jonah was also asleep in the lower deck of a boat that was being threatened by a storm. Except in that story, Jonah was running away from God and away from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And here Jesus is right in the center of God's will, moving towards people who are far from God. 
In the story of Jonah, the sailors wake Jonah up and they ask him to call out to his God. They're, they're desperate and so they say, anybody that you can call out to to help us in this situation, go ahead and start pleading for help. Well, in Luke, the disciples, they come to Jesus and they, they are basically convinced they're all about to die. Jesus, you might as well wake up for this, Okay. And what proceeds in the next couple of verses can really be summarized in two rebukes and a question. Okay, two, two rebukes and a question. The first rebuke is Jesus rebuking the storm. He turns to this storm that is threatening them and he, he rebukes it, as all the text says, and, and it stops. And I don't know about you, but the, the image of Jesus rebuking the storm is somewhat uh, amusing to me. I just imagine him talking to it, you know, like a, like a little puppy, right? You know, like bad storm or something like that. Like, what does that actually look like? What is the, the mechanism for rebuking in the storm? Is, uh, is Michael Scott declaring b- bankruptcy, right? I rebuke the storm, uh, so, something along those lines. But that's, that's not really what's going on here. He's not scolding the storm for doing something that, that it should not be doing or something like that, at least not precisely like that. The, the language of rebuke has already been used multiple times by Jesus. In chapter four, verse 35, he rebukes an unclean spirit. A few verses later, he rebukes a fever that uh, has come on Peter's uh, mother-in-law. It seems like any force or threat against God's image bearers is at least a candidate for being rebuked by Jesus. Jesus has an interest in taking care of people. He loves people, and there are various forces and threats that are coming against the people that he encounters, and when he sees those threats, his response is to rebuke them, to turn them away, to to quash them. This ought not be happening is the idea, and so stop it. The second rebuke, though, is Jesus turning to his disciples in verse 25. Jesus handles the storm and then he he turns to them and he asks a very simple question that is not so simple. Where is your faith? He's not looking for them to to locate it. It's, It's a rhetorical question. One commentator summarized it. You should be more trusting. Why are you freaking out in this way? Why are you despairing? Now, I don't think, and we have to be careful here, brothers and sisters, Because I don't think that what Jesus is saying is that the disciples were wrong to think that the dangerous storm was dangerous. Okay, the disciples were not dumb. They can look at a, I mean, they're experienced fishermen. They can look at a dangerous storm and say, this is is a problem. The disciples' mistake was that in the face of danger, they allowed themselves to think that Jesus would not care for them. It was not to look at danger and say that's not dangerous. It was in the face of danger to lose sight of the one who was with them through the danger. And how often is that our story? We forget what Psalm 23 verse 4 tells us, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Friends, Psalm 23 does not say you will not ever have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It says when you find yourself in the valley of shadow of death, you know who's there with you? The great shepherd. Psalm 56 verse 3 says that when I am afraid, when I find myself in terrifying situation, I put my trust in you. Romans 8 
The end of this great passage, Paul jumps on board and reminds those who are in Christ, if God is for us, right? That's the big, let's stop there. If God is for us, friends, followers of Jesus Christ, I want you to know God is for you if you are in Christ Jesus. He is 100% fully, finally, eternally for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did, and listen to the guarantee, listen to the logic of Romans chapter eight. He who did not spare his own son. How much is God for you? He sacrificed his son for you. If he was willing to do that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The disciples' failure seems to be that they forgot that even in the midst of disaster, the Lord Jesus is with them for their good and ultimately no harm can come on them. Friends, I just want you to take a second. I just know in a crowd that says, I know for a fact in our church body, there are things that are assailing you. You feel, so many of you feel like you are in the valley of the shadow of death. And I would love to tell you what this passage is telling us, is that if you just have faith, all those things will go away. Those troubles will just disappear, and life will get easy. I just don't think that's what this text is telling us. I think what this text is telling us is whatever that thing, when I ask what is, what is the natural suffering that you are, you are experiencing right now, whatever the circumstances in your life, whether it's relational, physical health, circumstantial, your, your, your job, you lost your job, or your job is, is unenjoyable, you hate it, whatever that thing is, what I think this text is telling us is that as you walk through those, you do not have to despair and say, this thing will crush me because the Lord Jesus is with you through those things. And we get to look on him and know, know that no matter what happens, no evil can ultimately triumph over you because the Lord Jesus is with you. Amen. That is good news for us today. So he rebukes the storm, he rebukes the disciples, and then the disciples are left with this question. They have an appropriate response, don't they? Don't, don't they? The text tells us that, that they, have, they have a level of fear. They're, they're, they're marveling at Jesus, verse 25 tells us. And in, but that fear does not drive them away from Christ. Instead, it draws them into Christ. It's not a, a fear that is repulsive, but it is an awe that is welcoming. They are, they are standing in awe of this man, and they ask precisely the right question, don't they? They see the demonstration of power and authority, and they say, who then is this? Who then is this? That when he speaks to the natural created order, it listens to him? Like, do you know anybody who can do that? 
You see somebody speaking to the natural created order and you're like hoping it's a pet that they just have this like, you know, relationship with, right? You see somebody walking around speaking to the leaves of grass or something like that, you're a little concerned about them. You see somebody yelling. I mean, we even have expressions that talk about people yelling at the wind as though they're just a little, a little off, right? Like it's, it's madness to do that. Jesus speaks to the wind and the wind like interacts. Who then is this man? I love that they don't ask. I think what might have, maybe have, had been my question, how did you do that, right? Uh, help me understand the mechanics of this. But they, they are, are probably a little bit smarter than I am. They don't ask the how does that work. They say, who are you that you can do that? And, and, and Luke is putting it on their lips for us because there is one clear biblical answer to this question. Psalm 104 verse 7 tells us, it is at your the Lord God's rebuke that the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. There is only one who can control the wind and the waves and the sea. We are to see in the person of Jesus, the manifestation of the one true God. This is the God that they, their ancestors had worshiped, that they'd learned about, that they'd heard about, that they heard about his power and his stories and all those things, who split the, 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 the sea so that his people can walk across. What kind of person can control all of that? And the answer, according to the scriptures, is God can. And here in Jesus, we have the God-man. So the disciples get a, a front row seat to see the authority of Jesus over the natural world. Well, as soon as they get out of the boat, they're going to be confronted with another, uh, another threat in the form of the supernatural world. So let's see how Jesus reigns not only over the natural world, but also over the supernatural world. As soon as Jesus exits the boat, he's met by a, a man who is suffering from uh, demon possession. And starting in verse 27, we see several details that show us just the depth of this man's plight and his suffering. We, we can look at a, a couple details. The first one is his clothing. Namely, that he doesn't have any, uh, which is uh, just kind of a, 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 a clue. Something's, something's wrong with this guy. His housing. He might have had a house, but he wasn't staying in it, was he? It tells us that he's a man from the city. But verse 29 tells us that he does not live in the city. Instead, he, uh, sorry, verse 27 tells us that he lives among the tombs. And verse 29 tells us that he'd been driven out into the desert. This is a man who has been rejected, isolated, pushed out to a place of death and decay. Even the lack of clothes is not really supposed to be humorous. It's supposed to show a, 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 a kind of debasement that is happening to this man. He is descending lower and lower into, into chaos, the same kind of chaos that we've just seen uh, happening kind of in the waters and the wind. This man is, is under experiencing another kind of, of chaos and degradation from these, from these demons. Not only has he been isolated and, and degraded by the demons, but he's been suffering for a long time. This is a man, it tells us, who has been suffering a, a long time from these demons. Well, Jesus steps out of the boat and he's immediately thrust into a confrontation with this demonic um, force, being, spirit, that is inhabiting this man. But Luke is very interested to make sure that we don't get the wrong impression. 
this is not an even match. He doesn't at any point want us to think, who's going to win? Immediately, right when the man comes up to him, he shows us the, the posture. He fell down before Jesus. I don't think this is meant to, to communicate an act of, of worship, but one of a recognition of a, a, a separation of authority and value and worth. This man who is possessed by demons cannot help but put himself low in the face of Jesus Christ. He begins to beg Right? What kind of power struggle do you think is begun well by begging to your opponent? Okay? But multiple times in this passage, he's begging Jesus not to torment him in verse 28. He begs Jesus in verse 31 not to send him into the abyss. He asks for permission to be sent into the pigs, and then Luke tells us Jesus grants permission. There is clearly a separation of power and authority between Jesus and this man. Jesus clearly is the one who is, have, is, is in a posture of greater authority, greater dignity, greater power, and I love that the demon knows it. But Luke is also very helpful in situating us in, in, this, situ, in, in this, this uh, uh, kind of struggle, right? We see that the demon and Jesus, we, we can kind of layer them out. Okay, Jesus has this power and, and the demon is down here, but we might ask, where are we? Are we up here with Jesus? Are we down here? Well, he actually gives us a little bit of a clue when it comes to their power, right? In verse 29, we're given a little bit of backstory that this man has repeatedly been chained, hasn't he? He has been shackled by those that he is kind of assaulting or harming or scaring or something like that. But the indwelling demons had apparently given him some kind of super strength and he would break loose. There's a superhero in the New Testament, okay? Maybe a supervillain, I don't know. Uh, this man was able to break through from, from chains that were meant to constrain him and he was not able to be contained. G Luke wants to see, like, this is not, Jesus is here, the demon is here in terms of his power and authority, and like, everything we've got is down here. We, they are in a position of, of, of need and desperation. This man is, man is roaming free because no one can contain him, but with Jesus, it's not even a contest. He even says, he wants us to show, Jesus is way outnumbered here. You might say he's just one guy. No, 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 no. They're legion. This is an army of demons. Jesus is totally unbothered. This, this mass of demons tormenting this man, torturing the, the surrounding uh, villages and countryside and people that are coming around him, this man who has, has had so much power and authority to disrupt things in his context comes to Jesus and the only thing he can do is bow down at his feet and say, please don't torment me. That is the authority. There was no match for this Jesus, or sorry, for this man, and yet Jesus was greater. That's the point here. There was no match for this man. Jesus walks in the scene. Jesus is greater. And it progresses in a very strange way, right? 
the demons are sent into the pigs. They don't want to go into the abyss. I don't want to go too far down a rabbit trail here, uh, but the abyss is probably something like a, a representative of a, a place of, of judgment and death, of, of being kind of contained and sidelined. The, basically, the demons are thinking, anything is better than that. Whatever you do to us, just don't do that. And so they ask, hey, look, there's some, some pigs over there. Pigs were, were an unclean animal to the Jews, and so in some ways it was appropriate that an unclean spirit would be sent into the unclean animals. And we might ask, why does Jesus comply? Why does he go along with this plan? And, and it really is hard to say. It's, it's, uh, it's not clear. This is one of those texts where we have to be really careful not to overinterpret it because Luke just doesn't tell us a whole lot about the, the kind of the whys and the hows of the, the mechanics of this. What is the process by which a pig can be uh, uh, inhabited by demons? I don't know. But they can't. Right, it happens right here, okay? Perhaps it's best to see this as a matter of, of priorities and timing. Jesus' priority here is to relieve the suffering and to display his power over the demonic, relieve the suffering of this man. That's what he was focused on. It might be an issue of timing. There was a time that is, there is a time that uh, it is reserved for executing judgment on Satan and the demonic. That is coming. We can see it in Revelation chapter 20. Friends, we can be assured there is coming a day where God will execute final judgment on all supernatural forces that come against him. That was not what the priority of this day, and that was not the time of this day. This day was about releasing this man from his suffering. And so the, the demons are, are allowed to go into this herd of pigs, and they're still bent on destruction when they get there, aren't they? It's interesting to me, I think, that as soon as the demons make their way into the pigs, they immediately go into self-destruction mode. This is a, is, is a picture of what the demonic is interested in. Destruction, death, degradation. As soon as they enter into this livestock, it is wiped out. Before I go on to the response, I just, I just want to kind of take a, a quick aside here and, and give a word on spiritual warfare and the reality of the demonic. So we don't live in a culture and a context that I think overemphasizes demonic activity. Uh, in fact, we're probably in danger of underemphasizing demonic activity. Most people kind of fall into one extreme or the other, where they just see demonic stuff going on everywhere, or they just can't even imagine what it would look like. And I think what the scriptures give us is at least a category. We, we uh, guys, I'm just going to be on, like honest with you. We believe in some supernatural stuff. Like the idea of the supernatural should not bother us, right? We believe that there was a man who was born like 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead, and is still living right now, reigning over all things. The idea that there's demonic should not, like real demonic forces, should not really throw us off too much, right? At the same time, some people are, are in danger of so overemphasizing the demonic that they miss what I think is a very clear point in this passage, and that is the demons are no match for the Lord Jesus. If you find yourself conceiving of your life or spiritual warfare as this balanced attack between two co-equals, that is just not the picture of the scriptures. 
What we have in this text is a reminder. Friend, if you are experiencing anything demonic, you've been around somebody who's been possessed by a demon or you think there's any kind of spiritual warfare, here is the good news of this passage. The Lord Jesus lives and he still reigns over the supernatural world. There is nothing going on in your life, even if it is the responsibility and the consequence of demonic activity in or around your life. You know who can handle that? The living Lord Jesus who has set his love on you if you are in Christ. And if you are not a Christian, I want, to, I want to show you in this text, there are demonic forces at work in this world and they wreak havoc. They hate the one true God and they hate his image bearers. They hate his creation and they are bent on destruction. And frankly, friend, you are not powerful enough to overcome them. But the message of the gospel and the message of this text in front of us right now is that Jesus reigns supreme with all authority over all things, including whatever demonic activity you will ever, ever run into. Friends, we don't have to be scared of the demonic. They need to be scared of the Lord Jesus who is with us. You speak his name and they shudder. He is so much more powerful than they are. Well, the herdsmen become something like evangelists. Their, their, their job has just been ripped out from under them, which is unfortunate, but they become something like evangelists. They go back into town and they do kind of a, a come and see type thing, similar to what the woman at the well does in John chapter four, where they have an encounter with Jesus. They don't really know how to fully explain everything. What they do is they just kind of go and say, you probably ought to come and see this, this thing that's happening over here. And so the people, they come and they're shocked. Because here at Jesus' feet, in his right mind, clothed, was this man. Suffering for so long, degraded for so long, restored by the grace of Jesus. And like the disciples, they're afraid. They were seized with great fear, verse 37 says. But unlike the disciples, their fear does not draw them to the Lord Jesus. It repels them from him. Now, it could be that the pigs were their, their livelihood, and, and so Jesus basically seems to have just taken out their economy, and they don't really love that. It could be that they're just overwhelmed by this act of power, but for whatever reason, they respond to Jesus' authority not with faith, but with rejection. Not by worshiping Jesus, not by understanding him, not by coming to him, but by pushing him away. And I think this is so helpful for us because in the, these two stories, we've got, we've got a, a, a reminder for us that following the Lord Jesus, trusting in Jesus, being, being uh, uh, belonging to Christ is not a, a matter of primarily the intellect, but of the heart. Think in this text with me. Who got Jesus best? It's not the de- or sorry, it's not the disciples. It's not the crowds people. It's the demons. I mean, he steps off the boat. And he basically says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." The most high God 
You, you're here, and I, I'm desperate. I'm begging you, don't torment me. The demons knew Jesus to be the Son of God, and they hate him. The townspeople saw Jesus to be the Son of God, and they reject him. Friends, we need to be reminded you can be around this stuff all day long. You can even perceive the authority and the power of Jesus in many ways in your life. And that is not enough. It is not enough to recognize who he is. That's why in that progression that I was showing you earlier, the display of power and authority, the recognition of his identity, but there's this third component. We have to respond. And there are multiple responses. We can see him for who he is, see his power, see him for who he is, and hate him for it and say, go away. Kids, let me just tell you, kids in the room, let me just speak to you real quick. You can grow up in church, know all about Jesus. You can know all the Bible stories. And that is not the same thing as trusting and loving Jesus for yourself. Your parents can love Jesus, and I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that they brought you here. That is not enough. You can never go to church enough times to have salvation from your sins. The only person who can save you from your sins, kids, is the Lord Jesus. The only person who can rescue you from all natural threats and all supernatural threats is the Lord Jesus. But the good news, kids, is that Jesus loves you. He loves you. He has set his love on you in the same way that he has, has loved uh, this, this man and the disciples. You have the opportunity to hear the gospel and you have the opportunity to respond. We want you to not just hear about Jesus, not just see his power, not just know who he is. We want you to trust him the way that this man does. This man gives us the appropriate response, right? Earlier, I love this. Earlier, this demon-possessed man is begging for Jesus to go away. And now in verse 38, Luke tells us he's still begging for something different. He's begging to come and be with Christ. He wants more Jesus. He has been rescued by the Lord Jesus. He has been saved. He has been released from captivity. And now he wants more Christ. That is the picture of someone who doesn't just see Jesus' power or recognize who he is, but respond to him in faith. Somewhat surprisingly, Jesus turns this man away. Rather than telling him to come and be with Jesus, he now turns him and says, you've got an important job to do. I need you to go and testify. And so Jesus tells him, tell how much God has done for you. I love that Luke is trying to show us just very, very explicitly, show how much God has done for you. And so the man goes and tells how much Jesus has done for him. I don't know that we can say this man knew all the inner workings of the hypostatic union or anything like that or the, the incarnation that were at play here. What he knew was if God did something for him, he did it through this man, Jesus Christ. And when he went out, he wanted to say, you've got to hear about what Jesus has done for me. Guys, that uh, friends, if you're not very well equipped or confident in an evangelism, this is a great picture of evangelism. I mean, think how many questions someone would have had. Run me through it one more time. Where did the pigs go? How did they get there? Where did Jesus come from? All these things. And this man can say, I don't know. Let me tell you what he has done for me. 
If you are a Christian, you have that story. Right now, I, I, I bet we could challenge one another. Take 10 seconds and write down a statement. What has Jesus done for you? That's, a, that's good evangelism right there. You've got people are in your circles who, whose lives might be changed by hearing what the living Lord Jesus has done for you. You might not have answers to all their questions. You might ha- not have all the apologetics books memorized, but you can tell people, here's what Jesus has done for me, and I would love for you to come and see him. I would love for you to meet him. Friends, that's the privilege we have as those who've had our lives changed by the gospel is we get to go and say, I can't, I can't answer all your questions. I just know I was lost, but now I'm fine, found. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, and now I live. And the only explanation for it is I met Jesus. That's our story. And we have the privilege and the opportunity of sharing it with others. And so as we close, let's just recognize, let's just ask a few questions. Will we, church, recognize his authority over us? Will we see the absolute authority that Jesus has over the natural and the supernatural world? Will we really believe that he reigns over all things? When we see that, will we understand his identity, who he is, the Son of God, incarnate for us, lived the life that you and I could not live, died the death that you and I deserve, reigning eternally because he rose from the dead? Do we know who he is? And will we respond accordingly? Will we trust him completely with our lives? Not just being content to know, but surrendering all that we are to his perfect reign over all things. May it be true of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text and the reminder, Lord, that you are good and you are all-powerful. Lord, it's just so comforting to know that there is nothing that we can do, no place we can go that is outside your authority. What a privilege and a blessing it is to know, Lord, that you are for us and that if you are for us, nothing can be against us. God, may you... We ask for help, Lord. We want to be faithful proclaimers of the grace that we receive, just like this man. So we ask that even this week, you give us opportunities to go and tell all that you've done for us so that we can see your righteous reign, rule, be seen and worshiped by many others. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen.